Well, we want to turn our attention to God's Word now, so um, I want to continue in our series that we are calling Pillars. Uh, we are now in week four, looking at our fourth pillar uh, this morning, and uh, the pillar that we're looking at this morning is that of unafraid witness. Uh, our shorthand kind of version of that is unafraid witness. The longer version or the way that we say it here is this, it's sharing the good news of Jesus with boldness. Uh, these pillars for us are things that we are committed to, that are core and central to what we are about, what we are doing, um, what uh, drives our mission, uh, the foundation of who we are. And uh, as I've said many times in the series so far, is that we don't want this to just be words on a website or words on a piece of paper or words on a wall. Uh, we want to, this to be uh, things that are true of us. And uh, these are things not just lived out in the several hours that we spend together, Right? We gather together for services. We gather in homes for small groups. Many of you serve on teams in various capacities throughout the week. You know, that amounts to maybe five, six hours, like if, if we're kind of being generous. Like there's another 163 hours in the week. And so how are we living these things out, not just in the five or six hours that we're together, but how are we living this out for the entire week? And so we want to talk about this. And already, you know, maybe as we talk about, oh man, we're talking about evangelism this morning. Um, uh, for some of us, we, um, we have mixed feelings about this, um, and uh, for good reason. Uh, but the thing is, is that uh, this is such a needed topic, um, perhaps, and I hope you have been keeping up with just the climate of the, not just country, but the world that we live in right now. And there is a mass exodus away from the teachings and followings of Jesus Christ. Um, you know, one could argue that there was maybe a lukewarm commitment on the part of many that we're seeing maybe um, the natural. But here's the thing. Some of the stats that, that um, shake me awake is this, is that uh, research has conducted, has concluded that the next 30 years in our country will hold the largest and fastest shift away from religious affiliation in our country in all of history. Um, there's estimated that a million young people of like kind of Gen Z are walking away from the faith each year. If the trends continue, um, that combined with others will, will be about 42 million by the year 2050. That's kind of where the trends are going. And I spent some time um, over the last couple of weeks looking at some stats and looking at some things. And I just want to tell you that all of them are uh, kind of trending down. Uh, there's many more, like all of the stats as far as... Um, the Gen Z, are, they, are, you, do you, are you going to raise your children in the church or do you think that it is important to teach your children about the truths of scripture or the gospel or Jesus and, and, and what sort of affiliation do you have with the church and, and all the, I mean, you're just seeing all of this. And so I start here not to like sort of um, kind of put a fog over the mood and try and, uh, uh, you know, doomsday sort of scare us into anything. But the reality is, is that we can't be um, like that picture of a, an ostrich sort of burying our head and just thinking that it's the exact same as it's always been. I mean, just yesterday, I heard a pastor say that the climate of our country is the worst that he's ever seen. He's ever seen. We're living in a day and age. And so if it feels like, like, like it's a little harder to share the good news of Jesus with boldness, you're perceiving correctly, it is. But I will tell you this, it is also one of the greatest opportunities that we've ever seen in our time. I mean, for years, there has been this climate where if you start to share the gospel with someone, they're like, oh yeah, yeah, I know that. There's people that I've met over the, over my, the course of my life, and they're like, hey, oh, I've heard that already. I, I've, kind of, I've always believed that. 
And I'm not trying to put myself in the place of God and judge them, but uh, based on how they're living or sort of the things that they're espousing, I'm like, I don't think you do. Like, you might know it, but do you believe it? Are you really living it out? See, here's the thing. I don't think we're even in that time. So the tide has gone out, but here's the encouraging part is that it must come in again, right? If this is true, if this is life-giving, if this is what our dying generation, dying world needs, then at some point, the exhale is gonna have to turn into an inhale and the people are going to need to respond to the truth of Jesus. And so we are set up for a time of revival like our country has never seen. And it has been a long time since there has been a sweeping revival across our country. And so we want to see people come to embrace the good news of Jesus, the hope, the life that is found in that message. And let me just kind of put everything up front. He uses you, he uses us to get that done, to share this message of salvation. He has called us to it. And so I wonder this morning, let's just kind of play a little game of word association. I want you to think about what comes to mind when you think about this. You don't have to say anything out loud, just kind of in your mind, get a picture. But when I say the word politician, get a picture of a politician in your mind. All right? CrossFit fanatic. Do you have that picture? What about uh, a millennial? <laughs> See, odds are you probably have some sort of mental association, some sort of picture in your mind. Now, how about when you hear the word Christian? What's the word that you, or what's, what, what's the kind of picture that comes to your mind of someone who is a Christian? Now, my, I'm guessing that there's also some certain characteristics uh, with that as well. And some of that may be informed from kind of our, our broader culture or the impressions of what a Christian is or isn't. But here's the thing, is that Scripture defines for us what a Christian should look like. But here's one of the interesting things about that word Christian. Do you know that the very first followers of Jesus didn't call themselves Christians? They were called Christians by those outside of the faith. It was actually a derogatory term. Christian actually means little Christ. And it was kind of meant to be like a poke, like, oh, those little Christ running around, Right? Like this Christian, that, that, that is what it means. The word that was used that more than ever, I mean, Christian is not even used very many times in our, our scriptures. The word that's used so many more times is the word disciple. The description that is meant to be is a disciple. And that is used three, um, Christian is used three times. Disciple is used 281 times. And so disciple is a far more accurate and compelling description of what it means to follow Jesus. And here's the thing is that we, I said this um, even last week, right? This is not an audience. You guys are not just attenders. You are disciples, disciples of Jesus. And as disciples, we are called to do some things, to, to live out some things. And it exposes the fact that just claiming to be a Christian is different than actually being a disciple. A disciple is one who follows after Jesus, and so what we want to do this morning is in Matthew 4, uh, beginning in verse 18, we are going to see a picture of Jesus calling some of his first disciples to follow him. And right from the beginning, right from the beginning, he was clear about what this call included. What was the central point of this call? Let's look at our passage together. If you have your Bible open to Matthew 4, uh, you can follow along. Um, we'll put it on the screen as well. But it says this, beginning in verse 18, it says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee... He, that's being Jesus, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. And they were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. 
And going on from there, they saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father. What a fun name, Zebedee. I just, gotta, I just had to say that. Sometimes things come in my mind. I don't always say it just for your edification, but I, just, I was like, man, that's a fun name, Zebedee. Zebedee, doodah, yeah. Uh, their father, mending their nets, and he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Let's pray as uh, we ask God to teach us through this passage uh, this morning. God, we ask you to work now. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would um, shape and mold our hearts, uh, Lord, to better reflect and resemble the disciples that you have called us to be. Lord, I ask that you would teach us uh, through your word now. And uh, God, we know uh, that we um, have much to grow in this area. Lord, there is uh, much work to be done in this area. And so God, we pray um, for your powerful moving and working now. And uh, Lord, for you to teach us as we study your word together. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, here's some things that I think would be helpful to understand as we uh, look at what's going on here. You see that Jesus, as he come along, he, uh, comes along, he is calling these men to follow him. And Jesus, at this point, he's kind of the, the new rabbi on the scene. And what he's really inviting these guys to, this is discipleship. He is inviting these guys to be disciples of him. And this is a common thing. All Hebrew boys would go to Torah school starting at age five. And so every boy at age five would go off to Torah school and they would study what is for us the first five books of the Old Testament. That's the Torah. They would study this Torah. By age 10, all the young boys, so for five years they would study at Torah school, they would all know the Torah. Then from that group or from those boys, the best students would go on to, to study the remainder of the Old Testament well, the rest would return home to begin working on the family business. And so these 10-year-old boys that were sort of the top of the class would then be invited into this kind of continued education in the Old Testament. And about age 17, if a boy wanted to make a career out of his religious studies, the next step was to find a rabbi that he admired and apply to be one of his disciples. And just so you know, I mean, this was one of the top positions, most sought after careers that you could get. Okay, and so these boys would, again, everyone's exposed to the Torah, but only some would get chosen, and then you'd have to find this rabbi. Well, when you found a rabbi, you would go sit at his feet, and that was this request to learn from him. The rabbi would then examine him with questions, put him through a series of tests, his own little assessment, if you will, to see if he was worthy of being his disciple. And the rabbis would choose the smartest, most talented boys to be the disciples. It was the very top of the class, right? So it's kind of that situation that maybe some of us experienced. Maybe you graduated from high school at the top of your class. You show up to uh, undergrad, and you're no longer at the top of the class. You're like, oh, there's a lot of other smart people here, right? Like my little town of, of 5,000, you know, I was, I was kind of big stuff. But here, not as much. But, but that's what would happen. All these, all these guys would seek after this, and only the best would be chosen. The reason, one of the reasons that the rabbis were so picky is that when they, would choose, when they were choosing a disciple, they would choose someone who they believed that would become just like them, that they could mold, that they could shape. And so they wanted um, just not to all know what they, that, what they knew, but they wanted to do what they did. They wanted to continue the, the legacy of their teaching of, as a rabbi. And so for several years, these young men, they would follow their rabbis around. They would imitate them in every way. And the goal was to become like the rabbi you were following. 
It's interesting knowing that, again, this picture, that the rabbis would always choose the very best of the best. Notice, let's go back to the text, notice who was it that Jesus called. He chose these men. It says they were busy casting their nets into the sea. They had an occupation already, which means that they didn't go on to study their religious, right? They had, they had gone to, 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 the, to the Torah school and did not pass with flying colors, and so they returned back to the family business, and they were fishermen. Here's the first thing that's an encouragement for us that we have to understand about being a disciple is this, is that Jesus doesn't choose the best, he chooses the willing. Jesus doesn't just choose the best, he chooses the willing. What we see here is that this new rabbi, Jesus, as he's choosing Peter and Andrew as fishermen, what does this show us? It shows us that they were not, again, top of the class, the star players. These were, this was the B team, right? He's starting off with uh, the, the, second, like, the second rung, third tier you know, sort of guys. Like This is what he's beginning his team with. The very first disciples that he is calling and adding to the team, we can see that they were not the best of the best. So let that sink in for a second. That when Jesus chose and was building up his team of how he's going to begin this movement, he's choosing the B team. And of course, they went to follow him because the rabbi had chosen them. Right here you have guys without maybe, without him, much personal uh, potential or power. They're, they're, again, fishermen in sort of a small town on the north side of, of Israel. And they're chosen by this rabbi to follow him, to become like him to know God like he knew God, to know what he knew, to do what he did, and they didn't even know what they were getting into to ultimately be filled with the same power that he had. I mean, what an incredible thing. He didn't choose the best, he chose the willing. I have a quote from John MacArthur. He says it this way, God skipped all the wise of the day. The great scholars were in Egypt. The great library was in Alexandria. The great philosophers were in Athens. The powerful were in Rome. He passed over Herodotus, the historian, and Socrates, the great thinker, and Julius Caesar. None of those made the team for Jesus, right? Those would have all been contemporaries. Instead, he chose men so ordinary, it was comical. No rabbis, no teachers, no religious experts. I mean, he could have showed up at any time, right? He could, have, he could have shown up in the place to choose some of these powerful figures or anything else, like, but that's not where he showed up. He showed up on the Sea of Galilee, on the shores, and he chose these men. And he chose the B team with a specific purpose and a reason. It's because his work that he was going to do wasn't, was going to be so clearly seen, right? So clearly seen that it wasn't based on the abilities of men and women, but it was the work of God that was happening. And that's what we see in the book of Acts. I mean, people were watching what was happening, what was going on, and they're like, who are these guys? It even says, I think they're turning the world upside down, and these are like fishermen. They're Galileans. These are, these are ordinary guys. What is happening here? You see, I think sometimes we have to understand that people with a lot of talent and ability can get in the way because we would exist on that rather than learning to lean on his power and doing it in his strength. Jesus taught that in his power, uh, is the, his, that his power in the weakest vessel is infinitely greater than the greatest talent without him. Like that is such an encouragement to us. And so can we just start there and can I just encourage you? Because already as we talk about, you're like, you know where this is going. At the end, I'm gonna tell you, you gotta go out and tell people, be a witness for Jesus. 
And some of you are like, I've tried that. Or maybe I'm scared to do that. Some of you are, like, you know that you have fears about that. You have fears because you don't feel adequate. You don't feel like you're equipped. You don't feel like you are, your fear of rejection. Like, how are they going to respond? Maybe it wells up feelings of guilt. Like, well, why? I haven't done that in the past. And so, why haven't I done that? I know I should. I need to do that. But can we just begin at this point that God's not looking for the best? You might say, I don't know if I have what it takes to be able to carry this important message. But I'm just telling you, Jesus doesn't choose the best. He chooses the willing. The question is, are you willing to do it? And will you trust him to do it? God wants to use you. He wants to use you to work in your family. He wants to use you to work, uh, to work in your place of employment. And we need to stop making excuses that we're not able. He doesn't need your ability. He doesn't need your talents. What he's asking for is your availability. He's asking you to say, yes, I'm willing. He's not calling the equipped. Maybe you've heard this. He, calls, he equips the called. And so he's calling you and have you made yourself available to him. Let's continue on and see what it says next. Verse 419, he continues, and he said to them, here's the instruction. He says, follow me. And here's where we get, uh, where we see another thing about disciples is that he chose us, not we him. He chose us, not we him. As I said earlier, you know, the normal way, the kind of regular way is that if you were the best of your class, you would go and you would apply to the rabbi. So it was on the part of the disciple. The, the, the disciple would come sit at the feet of the rabbi and they would say, hey, will you take me on as your student? And then if the rabbi liked what he saw, if you passed the test, he would choose you back. And his selection gave them a great deal of confidence. And they would. I mean, even to this day. Uh, some of you know, when we went to Israel. Um, I got a chance to go to Israel this past spring and um, about a year ago. And uh, we're hoping, we're praying that we're going to be able to take a trip in a year. We're going to hear more about that in a little bit. I know it's a little dicey over there, but things are calming down, okay? Despite what um, the news may or may not say, it is calming down, praise the Lord. Um, but we're, we're, we're praying, hoping that we can go. And those of you that are desiring to go to Israel next year, we're, we're praying that we're going to be able to do that. But if you go there today, and you're especially in Jerusalem, you still to this day, I mean, all these buildings are marked with the names of rabbis, and there's certain schools of certain rabbis, I mean, still to this day. And so it was this great deal of confidence. If you were the disciple of a well-known, prominent rabbi, that kind of gave you the boost. You're like, oh, I'm one of his guys, right? And if they were struggling, they could say, well, my, my rabbi believed in me, right? He chose me. But here we have Jesus doesn't go about the process this way. He started the process even further. They didn't come to him. They didn't, like, you know, flag him down as he's walking by. Notice what it says. As he was walking by the sea, he saw them, he called to them, and he said to them, follow me. He began the process. He chose them. He invited them into it. Can I just tell you, some of you are struggling with some things right now. There is uh, perhaps a, a hurdle you are trying to climb, maybe a bit of a divide that you were trying to get across, um, some sort of complicated issue that you were trying to untangle, maybe a wound or something that you were trying to heal from, can I just encourage you with this, that if you are Jesus' disciple, he chose you. He chose you. I think sometimes we try and talk ourselves out of it. Like, no, I, it was me, I went to him. Like, no, he chose you. This is repeated. This idea is repeated in John 15, 16. 
Jesus said this, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the the Father in my name, he may give it to you. He's like, I chose you and called you. I appointed you for a purpose that you should bear fruit. Can we just be encouraged by the fact that Jesus, in all of our weakness, right, in all of our B-team ability, he was willing. He said, no, I choose you. I'm inviting you into what I am doing, this work of redemption here in this world. And we have to understand something about this calling. This is our next, next thing that we have to understand about being a disciple. It's this, is that our primary calling, as he calls us, invites us into this, is to be with him. Notice again what he says. He says, follow me. Follow me. He was inviting them into a proximity, into a relationship. The primary calling was to be with him. Notice what wasn't a part of this call, right? He didn't lay out a 10-step plan about what was gonna happen next. He's like, okay, here's the timeline. Here's what's happening this year. Here's what's gonna happen next year. Five years from now, I expect this to happen, right? He didn't have this master kind of plan he was giving or what assignments, you know, what's, here's kind of my, my curriculum. Here's the, the methods that I use in this. He didn't tell them where they were gonna be going or what lied ahead. All that he did was not this primary call to do something. It was to become like him and to be with him. To become like him, you have to know him. To know him, you have to know the words is teaching who he was. Listen, how do we be with Jesus today? We are with him through the things that he has taught us, through his word. We talked all about that last week, and what a great reminder to understand the power, the working of the word of God, the scriptures. If you wanna be with God, and I hope you do, one of the ways that you, primary ways that we are able to do that is by our time in this word. It gives us the opportunity, the chance to see him, to know him, to hear from him. It's a conversation. He's given us, he's written to us, he's, he's expressed these things to us that we might understand his nature, that we might uh, know of what he's done. He wants us to be with him. And we try and provide here at uh, part of the church uh, opportunities for this, right? We open God's word weekly here in our services Our small groups dig into God's word um, through discussion. We have uh, different studies going on. There's a a women's online study that's starting up in um, about a week or so. There's another study that's coming at the end of February that we get into, dig into God's words. We will offer classes and other opportunities and then certainly encouraging all the, uh, that's not to account for all the other conversations that are happening over meals or over coffee or just in, um, in relationship with each other. There's so many opportunities here. And here's the thing, if you want to be his disciple, you need to take advantage of the opportunities to have to get into his word, to get it inside of you and let it dominate, control, lead, direct your thinking, your behavior until it's just flowing out of you. Some of you know, you can think of the person who you can tell that they have spent some years, they've, they've, they've spent some time in God's word because they're always quoting scripture. That doesn't just happen uh, by a few minutes a day. That happens built on a consistency of years and years and years of getting into God's word. Can I just say, I am one of the most encouraged and excited about uh, the place that we are in spiritually and positionally as a church in, our, in regards to the word of God right now. So many of you 
have taken up the mantle of I'm going to read the word of God this year. So many of you, I believe, are doing it for like the first time and with the most commitment that you maybe ever had or had in a long, long time. Again, I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, but I mean, there are, as I've talked to people, I'm just like so encouraged by that. Why am I so encouraged by that? Because I know the power and, and impact of God's word. And I said it last week. I mean, can we just acknowledge we're, we're heading into, we're in sort of in those Old Testament. I mean, there are some dense things. There's some kind of thick things. And there's weeks that you read all those names and you're like, what did I just read? How does that help me right now? Like, what? But I'm telling you, the more you study, the more you understand, the more you're gonna see God's work through that, the more that you're gonna know him through that, it's not going to return void. It will return with a increase. It's going to make a deposit. It's going to shape you as you continue to do that. The reason that it will most primarily shape you is because it is, you are spending time with God in that moment, in that way. It is so, so good for us. And so let's not lose sight of this because I think it's so easy and, 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 um, and simple for us to, to forget that this is where the primary call is. When Jesus called us, he didn't just call us to a task. He called us to himself. He called us to be with him. But being with him requires something. Let's see what it says next in God's word. It continues on. It says, he said, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. Verse 20, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, similar situation, two different men, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee the father, mending their nets. Same way, he called them. We don't have the words, but I'm sure it was very similar. And immediately they too, they left their boat and their father and they followed him. Here's the thing that we have to understand in following him is that we have to leave it all. We have to leave all. Isn't it interesting what verse 22 records for us? Verse 20 mentions the nets. Verse 22, they just mentioned the father. Why is the father part of that? Well, they left him as well. What they were giving up in that moment, again, it happens in just a few words, but, but you have to understand the impact of that. They're, they're walking away from the family business, right? Like on the boat, like dad's like, we gotta get this thing repainted. It says Zebedee and Sons. And like within a matter of minutes, like it's no longer Zebedee and Sons. It's just Zebedee, right? Like he's left. He's just standing there. He's holding the nets. They're, they're walking away from it. Why are these two things identified? I think it's because these are some of the most significant things in our life, right? Like how many, if you want to meet somebody and you're at, getting to know them for the very first time, what are, what are, what's some of the questions that are gonna come up as you ask them about themselves? I think usually one of the questions that we will ask very early in getting to know someone is, hey, well, what do you do for work, right? The career. Another question that probably comes up if you're trying to get to know somebody is, tell me about your family, Right? We see these two things right here. We see career, they left their boat, and family left their father. There was significant relationships. Career and relationships. To follow Jesus, he has to take precedent over both. So now most of us will not literally have to walk away from our father over, or mother over Jesus, although some might. I mean, there are countless examples even today of, 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 of men, women that live in cultures where it is not okay to accept Jesus. I mean, they are getting rejected. They are, some are even having to flee for their lives for that. 
I don't think many of us are in that place. I mean, it might be, make for an awkward Thanksgiving or maybe no Thanksgiving with the family at all, but the reality is, is that many of us, as we come, we didn't have to give up the relationship with mom or dad or other significant relationships, but, this is, but we have to be willing to. For some, God may even uh, call you to a new career or a new sort of path. But the reality is this, is that not all of you are gonna have to get up and go. You don't have to move overseas or, or, or go somewhere else to be a part of God's work here. For many of you, it's not this dramatic of having to get up and kind of close up and kind of you know, cut off relationships. For many of us, you get to join God's mission right where you're at, like in your workplace, where you just spent all last week and you're going to spend this week, you get to be God's disciple, Jesus' disciple right there. And we have, to have, we have to come to this decision where we decide what holds the greatest position over our life. What is the most influential for us? We see that they were willing to leave it all behind. And can I just tell you that uh, many of you know this. Uh, you've come to Christ and you had to give up some old ways of life. There were some patterns, some relationships, some, some people that, that you know, may, maybe were a part of your life that you're like, I can't, I can't have that anymore. It does require that. See, the life of, of following after Jesus, I think, is a lot more sacrificial than oftentimes we want to make it, right? We want our life to be comfortable. We don't want to give it up. And so even, I mean, that's an important point as we're talking about sharing and witnessing um, for Christ and, 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 and telling others about that, you're gonna have to give up that that might not make you the most popular person on, on, and, you know, in the group, right? That's not, I said this before, that doesn't win us a ton of like social uh, collateral these days. Like talking about Jesus in your faith. I mean, talking about religion, period. Like it, especially if you're talking about Jesus, right? Uh, it seems like all other religions are okay. If you bring Jesus into it, like, ah, that's, that's, that's off limits, right? Like we, we are giving that up by bringing this up, but there is this, this, this understanding that in following him, we are laying some things aside. We have to leave some things behind. But let's go back to what is the central part of the command. He says, follow me. He's calling them into relationship, but then there's a result of this. What does he say in verse 19? He says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. He commands us to spiritually multiply. What he is calling these four guys to is to multiply themselves, to reproduce. And here's the exciting thing about following Jesus, it means that you are subjecting everything in your life to his lordship. You are setting aside all that um, you might want to hold on to and pursuing that which he has called you to. And just like he was a fisher of men, right? That's what Jesus came to do. He said that he came to seek and save the lost so as his followers also were called to seek and save the lost. Now, we don't do the saving. The disciples weren't called to do the saving, but they were called to do the seeking. And this is an essential part of being a disciple is being a fisher of men. And we have to move from beyond the fact that it's not just a few of us are called to do it. This is something that every single one of us, if you are a follower of Jesus, I got good news for you today. You're on the team. Not only are you on the team, but you're in the game, right? None of us are on the bench. We're all suited up, we're all wearing pads, we're all in the game. And it is one for all of us. See, the Bible doesn't know anything about a, a, a non-multiplying Christian. We are all meant to reproduce ourselves. 
John 15, eight says this, by this my father is glorified, how? That you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. A disciple proves to be a disciple by bearing fruit. And Jesus tells his disciple exactly how he wants them to bear fruit in what we call the Great Commission. At the end of Matthew chapter 28, it says, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Can I just pause there for a second? Why do we baptize the part of the church? Well, it's right here. This is like Jesus' main marching orders. Why do we baptize? It says, make disciples, baptizing them teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you know that the structure of this verse, the go, the baptizing, teaching, all of those are uh, sort of um, uh, kind of fall under the primary action verb, a uh, command verb, which is make disciples. And the go is kind of as you're going. It's, it's kind of this, this like, so wherever you go, make disciples. But it, the central verb, the central command here is to make disciples. Again, Luke 19, he says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. If we are his disciples, we are to do the same. There's a great book on evangelism. It was written years and years ago. Some of you have maybe um, read it. It's called The Master Plan of Evangelism. It was written by Robert Coleman. It says this, when will the church learn this lesson? Preaching to the masses, although necessary, will never suffice in the work of preparing leaders for evangelism. Nor can occasional prayer meetings, training classes for Christian workers to do this job. Individual women and men are God's method and God's plan for discipleship. It is not something, but someone. You are God's plan for discipleship. You are God's plan for evangelism. If you know Jesus, you are called to bring that to anyone who will listen. And so can I just say this? If you're here this morning and you don't personally know Jesus Christ, if it isn't clear yet, we want you to. We have a very clear call to do that. Why? Because we believe that in him is found life that you cannot find anywhere else. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He died so that we might have the forgiveness of sins. It might have new life in him. He came to make us alive. We are all born dead in our sins and we need the power and work of Jesus in our lives. And that is the message that we are bringing. So can I just say, if you are here in the room this morning, if you are watching this later or joining us on live stream and you do not know Jesus as your savior, we desire for you to know him and embrace him and follow him. That is like, it's not some secret agenda. That's out there, okay? I mean, if you're here this morning and someone brought you and you're like, man, why'd they bring me? They want you to know the hope that's found in Jesus, okay? Like we're not trying to like be all cute and kind of like secret about it. Like we wanna be bold with this. What did I say? Sharing the good news of Jesus with boldness, right? Like we're not trying to just sneak this in, you know? I don't know if I've shared this before. My, um, uh, my grandma uh, started this thing where she wanted her kids to eat more vegetables. And so um, they love, she's Italian, so they made uh, spaghetti all the time. She started putting peas in spaghetti. I'm like, what a terrible way to like ruin spaghetti. But it was the way that they would like get the vegetables in there. See, here's the thing is like, it's not like peas are hidden in spaghetti. There's these little green dots floating all over the place and it changes the taste. It makes it terrible. See, sometimes I think as Christians, we try and do that. We like kind of sneak the gospel in there. Like if I just kind of do my thing and every once in a while sort of drop a verse or say that I went to church or something that somehow like that's going to make, that's that's not what we're doing here. Like we are giving the gospel. We're bringing the gospel. Let me share it this way. If I could just kind of close with this uh, sort of story to maybe kind of put this to a, a point. 
it came to pass that there was a group that existed that called themselves fishermen. And lo, there were many fish in the waters all around. In fact, the whole area was surrounded by streams and lakes filled with fish, and the fish were hungry. Week after week, month after month, year after year, these who called themselves fishermen met in meetings, and they talked about their call to fish, the abundance of fish, and how they might go about fishing. Year after year, they carefully defined what fishing means, and they defended fishing as an occupation and declared that fishing is always to be the primary task of a fisherman. Continually, they searched for new and better methods of fishing and new and better definitions of fishing, and they created witty slogans and displayed them on big, beautiful banners. They built large, beautiful buildings called fishing headquarters, and the plea was that everyone should be a fisherman and every fisherman should fish, but one thing that they did, never, that they did not do, however, was they did not fish. In addition to meeting regularly, they organized a board to send out fishermen to other places where there were many fish. And the boards hired staff and appointed committees and held many meetings to define fishing and to defend fishing and to decide whether new streams should be thought about. And the staff and the committee members did not fish. Large, elaborate, expensive training centers were built. And these whose original primary purpose was to teach fishermen how to fish over the years were offered to the needs of fish, rather the nature of fish, where to find fish, the psychological reactions of fish, and how to approach and feed fish. Those who taught had doctorates in fishology, and the teachers did not fish, and the only thing they did was they taught about fishing. And year after year, tedious training, many graduated and were given fishing licenses, and they were sent to do full-time fishing, some in very distant waters, to which were filled with fish, yet many who felt called the call to be fishermen responded, and they were commissioned and sent to fish. But like the fishermen back home, they never fished. They engaged in all sorts of other occupations. Some felt their job was to relate to the fish in a good way, so the fish would know the difference between good and bad fishermen. Others felt that simply letting the fish know that they were nice, land-loving neighbors, that they would lovingly and kind know that that was enough. Now, it's true that many of the fishermen sacrificed and put up with all kinds of difficulties. Some lived near the water, bore the smell of dead fish every day. They received the ridicule of some who made fun of their fishermen clubs and the fact that they claimed to be fishermen yet never fished. Imagine how it hurt some were when one day a person suggested that those who don't fish were really not fishermen, no matter how much they claimed to be. Yet it sound, did sound correct. Is a person a fisherman if year after year he never fishes? More plainly stated, is one really following if he isn't fishing? I don't know about you, but that's convicting and challenging to hear and to read. The reality is we say that we want the world to know. We have been given the task to tell the world so that they might know you are God's method. So let me just make this super simple. Here is what we want to do this year. We're gonna call what we're doing this year, this is part of a national campaign. Many other churches in our network have done this. Many other churches are, are doing this. But we're gonna get on board with this thing that is called who's your one? Who's your one? What I'm not asking you to do is go and save everyone at your workplace. It's not even your job to save, right? You can tell everyone at your workplace. You can tell everyone in your, in your class. What I want, what I would love to see, what I'm calling you to, what we're gonna to endeavor together is that we would all identify through prayer one person that God is calling us to be intentional with the gospel in the year ahead. Imagine this, the 250, 300 people that call City on a Hill their church home, if all of us have one, even if we see a fraction of those respond this year, 
those come to know and embrace Jesus this year, the impact will be incredible. And so what I'm asking you to do today is to begin to pray and find out. It may take you a few days. Some of you, you already know. You have your one. You didn't call it that, but that's, you know your one. I'm doing the same thing. I've called our elders and staff to do the same thing. We are going to all, if you're willing, pray about who is the one person that God has placed you in relationship with that he is calling you to be intentional about and begin this. You can start today, begin to pray for them, begin to pray for opportunities. But here's the thing, I wanna warn you, if you start to pray for opportunities, you're gonna start seeing opportunities. You then need to take those opportunities to share the truth of the gospel. You're gonna question at that moment why you ever came on this Sunday. Why did you do this? But I'm just telling you, God is equipping you. He doesn't call the equipped, he equips the call. He didn't choose you because you were the best at it. He chose you because you were willing. He wants to use you to share the good news of his redemptive work with any who will listen. So church, can we do this this year? Can we take this up? I just wanna call us to be fishers of men like our rabbi, like our savior. This is what he came to do. This is what he has called us to do. So let's get after it. Let's pray, identify our one, and by God's grace, we're gonna see people respond to the good news of Jesus as they hear it from us. Let's pray. God, we acknowledge and remember just the work that you've done in our own hearts. Lord, and we desire that same truth, that same love, that same hope to be known by any and all who will listen. Jesus says in your word that you looked upon the people and your heart was broken. You had compassion on them because they were lost like sheep without a shepherd. God, give us that same compassion. God, give us that same burden for others. Lord, you have sent us into the harvest. You have said that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, we are to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the harvest. God, we are your workers. Lord, would you send us? We are willing. Lord, will you use us? We ask that you will do your good work. God, in the relationships that we have. Lord, already my heart is burdened as I've been preparing for this and praying for this. And Lord, you've placed a couple of names on my heart. Lord, I pray that you would help lead me to the right one. I pray that for all of us. Lord, we desire to see people respond to the hope that's found in you. And so God, use us to that end. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.